the Louis List Shipping Podcast. Welcome to the Lloyd's List Podcast. I'm Richard Mead, editor of Lloyd's List. The eyes of all future generations are upon you, and if you choose to fail us, I say we will never forgive you. With that blunt generational message from a 16-year-old activist, Greta Thunberg, ringing in their ears, the global governmental representatives attending the UN Climate Action Summit in New York this week were left to churn their way through a worthy, if not exactly inspiring, procession of presentations on how the world intends to reach the goal of net zero emissions by 2050. It's perhaps telling of the wider lack of action that shipping star turn at the event, a coalition of 60 industry heavyweights launching a bid to get a zero emissions vessel on the water by 2030, was actually seen as one of the more realistic and tangible approaches. I'm delighted to say that joining me today to dissect and deliberate the latest developments in the decarbonisation debate is our very own eco-warrior Anastasios Adamopoulos. Welcome to the podcast, Anas. Thank you, Richard. Good to be here. Now, before we kick off, um, I have a quick note for the uh, more attentive listeners out there. Uh, I said at the tail end of last week's edition that we would be talking LPG this week. Um, such is the nature and the pace of the new cycle right now that um, that's going to have to come out a little bit later. Uh, I won't make promises, just in case, but uh, assuming Washington's latest salvo on the uh, Chinese combined with rising tension in the Middle East Gulf don't derail our plans completely yet again, uh, you gas lovers out there are in for a treat, but uh, I'm afraid you have to be patient. Uh, anyway, back to this week. Anis, um, why should we care about what happened in New York this week, and what do you make of the industry's Get to Zero Coalition moonshot? Right, like well, like you said, Richard, there were a number of um, presentations and pledges and warnings, if you like, over this past week, but I think the the shipping moonshot, as it's been called, stood out because it was one of the more concrete sort of proposals that came out of this that came out of this week. Uh, there is at least a preliminary vision about how this timeline would work, with the ultimate goal being to develop zero emission vessels by twenty thirty. Now I think it's important because we've seen, you know, um, more local or more specific initiatives come out over the past two years among usually among industry players, mm-hmm. uh, usually a small, a much smaller number, to work on some specific project that would, you know, in the name of shipping decarbonization. But I think this is arguably the first time where you see this kind of scale uh, involving such a cross-industry spectrum um, with many of the companies not actually being shipping companies. You know, there are a lot of banks, there are a lot of, uh, there are ports in there, there are charters. Um, energy provide. There's a lot. There are a lot. There's a very quite diverse profile in there. Mm-hmm. And aside from that, there's an important political backing as well, and a lot of academic expertise in there. And I actually spoke uh, with one of those people. I, I spoke with Tristan Smith from the UCL Energy Institute and the University Maritime Advisory Services, who explained to me why this coalition is unique and why it matters. Okay, well, let's have a listen to what he said to you. We just stood up on the world stage at the United Nations and got recognised in the closing notes by the Secretary General Antonio Guterres as an initiative that r- was worthy of note. And that is great endorsement, but it's also going to put a lot of pressure on the members to deliver on that because there'll be a lot of people watching, hoping we succeed, but also, you know, ready to laugh if we fail. So that really raises a lot of pressure. Um, 
then uh, beyond that, I think it's crucial to see that this is a multi-stakeholder initiative, um, that it works on all aspects of the ecosystem that we need to develop in order to enable the business case. So it's not it's not a single group of equipment manufacturers or owners or policy regulators who are all trying to think about that. It recognises at its core the fact that this is a messy problem that is going to involve some aspects of policy, some aspects of business cases, some aspects of technology, and all of those need to be brought together. And I think it's got the right mix of um, different corporates, but also some governments who can help that happen. It's CEO committed, so it's got corporate engagement at the very highest level. Mm. Um, it's because of that. It's also relentlessly business case centric, which I think is crucial. This is this is not about something which is doing the right thing because it's the right thing. It's because we're going to have to work to make sure that it can be justified to those boards, to those CEOs, to say when when the investment point comes, that here is why this makes sense as a business case, and that that's going to be a driver throughout. Um, and it's true zero focus. I think there are, you know, there is a lot of pressure at the moment to look green, and there are a lot of ways that you can look green. But this group has really tried to narrow its focus to what I call true zero, as opposed to some of the fake zeros that might be um, concepts out there at the moment. Mm. And then, I, finally, I would just say it's very near-term oriented and pragmatic. So I think. You know, there's a good reason why it didn't want to get bogged down in the 2050 debate. You know, what's the right number in 2050 and do you decarbonize in 2040 or 2045? Like we know that um, there's going to be a lot of work that needs to be done. And that realization of any 2050 target, whatever the number, is only going to come to fruition if we start soon and we get some new builds from 2030 onwards. And that's why this group focused on 2030. But in order to get to the point where you've got commercially viable new builds in 2030, you still got, you know, five to 10 years work. Um, and that's why the group is really turning that long term target of the Armeo into a very sort of short-term um, action and I think every meeting that we've had every time we've discussed that as a group everyone realizes that the five to ten years that we've got now is actually that's an incredibly short period of time given the amount that needs to be done in that just to make sure mm -hmm. that this is going to succeed so that's an interesting view from from Tristan obviously this this coalition is 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 more than just the companies. You know, you've got the big uh, you know coalition of the willing heavyweights there. You've got some some big names, but interesting. They've got the likes of Tristan from UCR. They've got Lloyd's Register, and they're looking to grow that. Hmm. And I think the key there is what's not there yet. And we saw this uh, only a few months ago with the Poseidon Principles launching with. Some big names, but very much looking to grow, specifically in terms of Chinese leasing companies mm. and uh, export-import banking. This coalition, big high-profile launch, but realistically, they need that volume. They need that gravitational pull, and uh, mm. what's there at the moment isn't going to be enough. They need they need a bit more physical presence. Now, mm. it's created a splash in the market. I guess the question is... Is that going to be enough momentum to get some real change happening? What do you, what's, what do you get the impression is, is the, the attitude in the market right now? Well, I think they, the coalition, may, has made it very clear that their goal for the next year, before they actually start any work, is mm. to expand membership. Mm. I mean, this is an impressive catalogue of participants, but clearly it's not enough mm. uh, on its own. Um, and I think that will be that will likely be easier to get than uh, was expected. Well, than s some people might think. You know, I spoke this week with uh, 
uh, Hapak Lloyd, who told me, who are not members, but they told me they are thoroughly looking into it. I spoke with DMVGL, who said they'll be monitoring this and will consider in the future if they will join. Mm. Uh, I spoke with MSC, who also said, you know, we're aware of the initiative and we are considering a number of, of initiatives uh, to see which, you know, to evaluate basically which uh, is more suited to serve the decarbonization purpose. So I think ultimately, you know, more and more uh, companies are going to enter. The, the question here is, um, at what point does that, I don't want to say not become enough, mm. but does that reach a peak and you now need other factors to come in and play a role? Well, that's that's the key here because yeah. I mean, for all of the um, you know the froth and the publicity that goes along with this, what we're talking about is a combination of money, yeah. R and D. There's yeah. going to have to you know yeah. seriously invest in in technology mm. that frankly does not exist mm. yet. But this is a wider question of how the industry and those companies are going to engage with not just shipping, uh, not even just the IMO, but the wider framework. Mm. Uh, and you know, the IMO is key here. You know, the regulatory framework within which this exists. That's going to be, to some extent, the tricky bit, I would have thought. Yeah, and it's like Tristan said, um, effectively, a lot of this will have to do with actually developing a business case Mm. for zero emissions vessels. And it's quite clear, having spoken with people who are involved in this, Mm. that policymakers are going to be crucial here. Look, I mean, the IMO developed its strategy back in April 2018 to slash at least uh, 50% of global shipping emissions by by 2050. And I'm sure when they agree to this, this kind of coalition is exactly what they would be hoping for. Mm. You know, commercial mobilization, basically, uh, as a result of a firm policy target. The challenge now is to actually come up with measures and policies that will enable uh, investment in this kind of thing. And Tristan explained to me a little bit more about why the role of the IMO will be just as crucial now. Well, let's have a listen to uh, what Tristan had to say there. All our work is showing that this is a parallel twin track problem. Mm. Um, you know, this uh, private sector leadership is absolutely needed, and the Getting to Zero Coalition is centered on private sector leadership, and 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 that that's brilliant. But it it will not succeed if because ultimately a lot of these options of fuels are looking like they could be more expensive than fuel, especially than oil, um, especially in the short run. Uh, it's going to need some significant policy stimulus to make the, to make the business case, and so. So I think it's it's not this is definitely not solved by business businesses and private sector alone. So the I think the message to the regulators is therefore you know you've got a symbiosis that you need to you need to cultivate and by that what I mean is the regulators only achieve their objective of looking like they've succeeded in delivering the initial strategy if they have private sector leadership. So they really need private sector leadership. They need to support getting to zero. And getting to zero desperately need the IMO to make some midterm policy, uh, which is going to give them a business case. And so they're, they're inextricably connected now. Mm-hmm. And the, if the regulators could understand that, um, I think they can. And then they just need to react to it, hopefully positively. And clearly the IMO is a complex um, maze of different member states with different priorities. So there might be even a minor, minor, minor majority, so 
just over 50% who get that now, but we need more than that. We need a, a full majority to, not full majority, but a, a strong majority to get significant rapid progress on policy. And and that and we also need to recognise that, that that takes time. It's not that IMO has failed over the last two years. It does take time to debate and to reach the right conclusions to do good policy design. And, and um, we need to give the time in the IMO process and the resources to the IMO process for that to play out. But... Um, it needs to desperately support the private sector action because their biggest risk now is is on there being insufficient strength um, and clarity from the IMO on, on how we're actually going to incentivize this. Mm. So I've got three three points that I think is um, where I would stress it needs to be very clear. One is on very clear information on when policy measures associated with invest, in, incentivizing shifts away from fossil fuels will enter into force. So it doesn't matter if it's not 2022, it mm -hmm. can be later than that. You know, We yeah. don't have to do everything in a panic, but we just need to know the timetable because that timetable enables everyone to line their ducks up and to get their investments and strategies sorted out. We need full commitment that policy will regulate for in-sector reductions. And so this goes back to my comments about offsetting. You know, There is no global carbon price. There is no global recognition that nationally determined contributions are sufficient to meet the Paris temperature goals. So you can't expect to solve this problem by out-of-sector offsets. And if there's any ambiguity on that from the IMO, that's going to destroy and kill the business case for those who want to do the right thing and invest in the solutions for shipping. So that that's it's so important that we maintain the line from the initial strategy and that we don't get seduced by the concept of uh, we can offset our way out of this because that's economically optimal. Well, it it's it's politically suicide mm -hmm. and then we need some engagement on how IMO can help incentivize the decarbonization of upstream emissions for different fuels and this is a really difficult one um, I'll explain what I mean a bit you know carbon pricing and shipping might solve the operational emission problem but we all know that hydrogen ammonia can be produced from natural gas without any control of that emission so there's a real risk that um, IMO shoots the shoots the climate in the foot by, and the shipping sector at the same time by incentivizing a shift to hydrogen or ammonia and then just moving all those emissions upstream and onto land. And mm. my point about offsetting is, is and NDCs is valid there too, because you know, let's say the US does genuinely drop out of the Paris Agreement, then why wouldn't all the hydrogen and ammonia be made in an uh, irresponsible country that has taken the decision to opt out of the Paris framework? and make sure that they're providing the cheap fuels that shipping can burn, thinking, oh, well, we've got zero operational emissions, but the system will fail and the climate will fail if we do that. So so there's got to be some recognition of that. Uh, it's difficult because I know we'll say, well, we don't regulate the production of fuels, which is right. But I think with sulfur, we've got a really good example of how IMA doesn't regulate the production of fuel from a sulfur content perspective, but it does say what fuels the shipping sector can use mm. and we need to we need to be prepared for the IMO to develop that guidance and ultimately that policy that gives the fuel producers the incentive to make the in, the investments that mean that we have genuinely zero upstream emissions as well as operational emissions all good stuff there Anas and uh, interesting to hear the insight from the uh, the knowledge partners behind this while you were doing that, I was uh, I was taking a bit of a wider view, talking to Baroness Bryony Worthington. She's the uh, executive director of the Environmental Defence Fund in Europe, 
and uh, fast becoming a regular on this podcast, as you'll be familiar to many of the listeners. She was actually out in New York this week for the UN Climate Action Summit. Um, worth noting that you know this this summit that uh, we're talking about concluded with a, a torrent of new announcements. Um, these included uh, commitments by 66 countries, 93 companies, and more than 100 cities to reach net zero carbon emissions by 2050. Given that Bryony was there in the thick of it, I thought, well, who better to uh, give us the view in terms of what this all means for shipping? It was encouraging to see the number of announcements made, but I think most people were left feeling slightly concerned that the biggest countries and the biggest blocks weren't at the table um, committing to more ambition, and that there still doesn't seem to be a level of commitment that's commensurate with the scale of the problem. So overall, I think people are getting people are getting the message, and certainly Greta's appearance uh, was was very powerful. She pulled no punches at all in telling the UN that it's it's basically been wasting the last twenty odd years, and that they need to step up. Um, and it, that was very powerful because there's an element of truth in it. Because in all the time that we've been meeting to discuss action to, to tackle climate change, emissions have been rising, and in fact the rate at which they're rise, uh, rising is rising. So, you know, there's a sense of um, there's a disconnect between what we know we need to do and the mechanisms we have for, for making action happen. Mm. I mean, it's slightly dispiriting that it takes a 16-year-old activist to uh, to hold the world to account. But, uh, you know, as you say, the star turn certainly drew in the media headlines. It's a question of, I guess, really translating that uh, media attention now into some tangible action. Do you, I mean, yes. do you think that, you know, events like this week do result in, in, in movement or is it really just a, a, you know, a bit of media froth and, and, and more of the same? Well, a lot of it depends on how much we hold um, people to account who've made pledges and then hold those who weren't there to, to account too and, and insist that this is, a, this is a, something that the biggest emitters take seriously. The geopolitics, as you'll know, are, are not brilliant at the moment. So um, getting Europe, China and the US to work out uh, how they're going to um, bend the curve in global emissions is, is our number one priority. Uh, but it doesn't help when certain leaders um, aren't taking the issue seriously. So yes, it's, it's, it's very difficult circumstances. But there are you know, glimmers of hope, and I, I actually thought the, the shipping announcement from the um, Getting to Zero Coalition was one of those examples where it, the difference with that announcement was that you've got a mechanism within the IMO to actually help make that a reality. And I, I think that's what sort of singles out both shipping and aviation to an extent, that they've got mechanisms, UN mechanisms for setting common rules, which is a great asset. And you know, you and I have spoken on the podcast previously about that framework that allows you know shipping to really sort of motor. And I think with the zero uh, coalition moving on quite so quickly after the Poseidon principles that you know really directed the the finance community towards the same goals, what we're getting now is is a coalition of the willing. You know, at least at the top end of the industry. You know, these sixty companies, many of them were industry heavyweights, and and that is promising, I would say. The concern, I guess, is the speed at which they expand that coalition and then turn that into tangible action. And of course, you know, the real issue here is that uh, while the, the Mersks and the Cargills of the world are, are certainly uh, all pointing in the right direction, the rest of the industry is deeply fragmented and it's going to take a significantly bigger uh, gravitational pull than, than those 60 alone to, to shift the rest of the industry towards, uh, you know, zero by 2030. 
No, but that's true. I mean, they, they were saying they would have um, deep sea vessels on, on routes by 2030. That was the commitment. And, and it's interesting, if you, if you kind of think about how innovation happens, often you do need um, front runners and, and kind of the first movers to then create the sense of this is possible to help build confidence and to then unlock, unlock investment. Mm. And so, so the fact that you've got these, um, these you know, the, the, the big the big brands who do operate deep sea routes, it is it's got a credibility to it that they could make this happen. Now, it won't be commercial unless there's a level playing field created that enables the, these um, ships to actually, you know, keep plying the waves and to keep their customers. So so there's going to need to be some policy and um, it, that's going to be now the focus will all shift to um, MEPC meetings in November and in the IMO where there is, you know, discussions are starting about how do we support investment in zero emission fuels. So um, there's a definite next step, which is what I think people need when they make these pledges. You've got to know what's the pathway. And, and mm. I think in shipping, we have got a pathway. Mm. I mean, you, you were there in person. I mean, how do you think it went down compared to the rest of the announcement? Do you, I mean, is there, was there a sort of, uh, you know, thinking in the room that, you know, there is power in numbers, whether that's dollars and oil volumes or ships or however you want to measure it. I mean, how, how well was it taken by the rest of the room? Well, I think it, it was um, it was well received. The, the, there was a little bit of fatigue that set in, I think, by the by the you know the end of a long day. Um, and, and I still think um, people underestimate or, or really aren't aware of the importance of shipping. Mm. And it's um, so you know we have got um, work to do to kind of make people understand how how potentially exciting this is because this is a sector that is um, you know underpinning a huge amount of global trade, and it's it's traditionally been very wedded to fossil fuels and now it's saying actually we can see a future where we can make a break from that and look at alternative fuels which don't have emissions and that's that is that is a significant uh, shift now what happens in shipping will almost certainly benefit from what's already happening on land and vice versa if uh, shipping moves into this with uh, with a serious policy you will see, i think you'll see shipping helping to unlock investment in new technologies new processes large scale investment in clean energy that will have a benefit into other sectors so so this is actually uh, quite a uh, fundamental um, and, and hugely significant step. I just don't think many people, if asked about climate change, shipping won't be the first thing that comes to mind. They'll think of forestry or they'll think of um, maybe wind farms. But you know, this is actually a hugely important but hidden part of the global economy. Mm. And uh, the more profile we give it, and the more people come to understand its importance, the better, really. I, I, I think that is a, you know, a, a very valid message for the, uh, unfortunately, I think shipping and, and certainly this podcast is guilty of, of, of the industry talking to the industry, but having a little bit of perspective in terms of where we fit in the integrated global economy and the supply chain is um, somewhat sobering. Uh, it's nice to see that we have positive announcements, but you know, realistically, shipping is somewhat less popular than uh, finished jazz in most international forests. So uh, I, I think we have a little way to go yet. We do, but you know, it's. Uh, I think people are starting to realise that these corners of the UN that allow for sectoral conversations to take place are really, really important and valuable, especially in today's fractured world. So, um, you know, the, the fact that we have a process, we have a dedicated UN body, and we've got a track record of 
of using common rules to, to protect the environment. I mean, sometimes it's slow and, and it's challenging, but it has passed, you know, very significant uh, regulations that change the industry. And it can do it again. I love the phrase now that's being described as this is the fourth propulsion revolution. You know, this is, it, shipping can do this. And, um, and I think you've got to really take hope for the fact that once it decides to move, um, it can do so. And, and there aren't many sectors in the, in the global economy that have that ability. I'm glad we are ending on a note of hope. We, uh, we all need some this week. Um, uh, Baroness Bryony Worthington, uh, thank you very much for joining the Lloyds List podcast again. Uh, my pleasure. Thank you very much, Richard.